You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Welcome to week nine. Today's teaching is on Exodus 33, 1 through 34, 35. Thanks for joining us. All right. Good morning, ladies. I, I hate to interrupt all this great conversation. It feels Just very sad to me. Uh, I love hearing all your laughter. I feel like seven minutes ago, there was something very funny happening at almost every table. It got like really loud, full of laughter. So you must have been in all the same spots in your homework. Um, Yeah, this has been such a joy uh, to go through the book of Exodus with all of you. And I can't believe that we're already at just three weeks left. We have today and then two weeks after this. It feels like it has gone so quickly, um, but it really has been such a blessing to study this book with you, uh, to be on this journey with you. And I hope and pray that this again has just given us this this desire to be in the word and to know the Lord more fully through it and love him more. Um, So yeah, let's get into today's teaching. So remember where we left the Israelites last week? Their sin had them in a precarious standing before the Lord. They broke covenant with God and in that atrocity paid a steep price. But as Chris said last week, Moses stepped into that breach between God and his people. They needed a mediator, one who would intercede on their behalf. The question remains, what will become of these people? What will become of God's covenant purposes in the world? Can you feel the tension of the narrative at this point? The broken stone tablets at Moses' feet serve as a glaring reminder of Israel's unfaithfulness. Have they finally pushed him too far? Is he going to give up on them? He tells Moses in verse 1 to depart, go up from here you and the people you have brought out of the land of Egypt. It almost feels like God doesn't even want to claim them when he says you and the people. But then in an act of mercy, he recommits to giving them the land he had promised to them to protect and provide for them. He is faithful Yahweh after all. When I read this, I picture the times we've tried to get a steer from their pen to our trailer on our little farm. One time we had a steer that jumped over not one fence, but two fences to get away from us. That same night when we tried a different steer, because the first one was pointless at that point in time, he decided to lay down half of his body in the trailer and half of his body out of the trailer. And as you can imagine, it is nearly impossible to move a 1,400-pound animal who is laying down. It's also impossible to drag him one way or the other. I would say in this moment, he was being (laughs) stiff-necked and obstinate, difficult to lead, which is what God was calling the Israelites at this time. God had removed his presence from them. And this was a form of protection for them. When this steer didn't want to move, I assure you that I did not want to protect or provide for it. I wanted to eat it. It was going to be delicious steak very soon. 
This, among many other things, is what makes me very different from God. Amen? We see in verse 4 that when the Israelites heard this disastrous word that the Lord was not going to go with them, they mourned, they grieved deeply. It is at this moment that the Israelites finally seem to understand the seriousness of God's commitment to his holiness. In Eastern tradition, it is customary to take off ornaments of gold and jewels of any flashy dress to show your grief. And in their sorrow, the Israelites stripped themselves of their ornaments literally and figuratively, showing the condition of their hearts full of sorrow and shame. They were humbling themselves in repentance. I wonder if we've ever come to the conclusion and conviction that having things means nothing if God's presence is not with us. Despite the sins of the people, God remains true to his word. He will deliver them to the promised land, but he will not go with them. Their sin had separated them from God's presence. This is the first time the Israelites have experienced separation in this way. Can you imagine how devastating this would have felt for them? So what is this tent of meeting we see in verses 7 through 11? We just studied the instructions for the tabernacle, but this is a different tent The tent of meeting is kind of an aside here. It's not really in the chronological telling of the story. There is still limited presence, similar to when God met with other patriarchs like Abraham. The common Israelite still does not have access and cannot draw near to God. At the tent of meeting, Moses initiated contact with God. This tent was not within the encampment, but it was situated outside of it whereas the tabernacle would be built inside of the camp. This tent of meeting is served by Moses and Joshua, not by the Levites. And the cloud was only present when Moses was inside the tent meeting with God. The tabernacle will replace this tent of meeting. Exodus 33:11 tells us that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now this face-to-face is a metaphor. In Hebrew language and tradition, you would not have looked someone in the face who was in a place of authority over you. God had invited Moses into a unique relationship with him, going so far as to call him friend. He is not literally seeing the face of God here. Yet this description confirms Moses' unique role as a covenant mediator. Just as we saw him stand in the breach last week, he does so again. He no longer calls the Israelites them. He calls them I and them, we and us. He is a type of Christ in this moment as he appeals to God's character in remembering his covenant promises. Moses, knowing that he had favor from the Lord, appealed to God to credit that favor to the people at this time. Moses is so desperate for God's presence. He recognizes that God's presence is what really matters, and he is not willing to go to the promised land without it. In essence, he's saying, please don't leave us. 
We often ask the question, did God change his mind? But let's instead zoom out for a minute and ask what the larger picture is here. What do we know must be true? God is sovereign and all-knowing. God promised to be faithful to his people. God never lies and will not go back on his word. God knew all along what he would do in response to Moses' request, but Moses did not. God tells Moses that he will judge the people, thereby setting Moses up to intercede for them in this moment. Moses appeals to God both as the sovereign God and also in a very personal way. He appeals to God knowing that God's plan was to redeem the people and also of the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God revealed his plan to Moses at this time, that he would in fact stay true to his plan and promises. He invites his people to intercede. We too are invited to pray to the sovereign and personal God. Those of us in Christ can now intercede for one another because we have been granted access to the Father's presence through him. So how do we reconcile this relenting? Is God acting unrighteously by not following through on the consequence? First of all, remember that the people did receive consequences for their actions, even if he relented in this way. Secondly, we can tend to forget that the Old Testament believers were ultimately saved in the same way that we are, through the cross of Christ. Though we cannot understand the technicalities of all of that, you can be certain that while God mercifully relented in this moment, that sin would be paid for by the death of Christ someday. Remember that we do not have to understand exactly what God is doing and how he works to trust and obey him. There is a danger in trying to reduce God to something we can understand, to a process or a formula. And friends, it's okay to not understand this fully, to sit in this tension and to continue to trust that the Lord is who he says he is but I encourage you to continue to seek the Lord in this. And remember that Exodus is a shadow of the gospel to come. If we look at this situation with that in mind, what does this story tell us? Before Christ, we were dead in our sins and we were liable to God's judgment. But then Christ stood in the breach, interceding on our behalf. Christ comes to our defense on account of his righteousness and his favor with the Father. Christ has united us with himself and we are now credited with his righteous standing before the Lord. In this instance, God still judged the people. He just didn't destroy them. He is their covenant-keeping God. His promises to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still stand. He cannot go against his character. The big picture here is that Moses' intercession foreshadows Christ's intercession on our behalf, which saved us from God's impending judgment and death. Okay, let's return to our story now. So the Lord answers Moses favorably in verse 17. This very thing you have spoken, I will do 
For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. This is our God, full of justice and grace. Remember how Moses responded to God at the burning bush? He's a different man now, isn't he? As Moses grows in his knowledge and fear of the Lord, he desires more of him. Moses is now so desperate for God's presence that he begs him to see his glory. He had already enjoyed rich communion with God, yet he wants more. God agrees, but with a protective condition. Oh, sorry, too far. Exodus 33, 21 through 23 says, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This hand is again not really God's physical hand, but it was a way to provide a visual to this spiritual experience. Moses is again using his limited human words to try to describe an indescribable God. Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Today, we can experience God's glory as we are hidden with Christ in God. So why can Moses see God's back but not his face? Many have speculated about this, but the main thing we are to understand is God's face in Scripture is meant to convey the idea of a full, unmediated glory. No sinful man can look upon the face of God and live. Yet this is the hope we have, that one day we will see him face to face in heaven. Though Moses could not handle a full display of God's glory, verse 19 tells us that the Lord would allow all of his goodness to pass before Moses. This goodness, this essence of his character will be on full display as we move into the next chapter. In chapter 34, God invited Moses back up to the mountain. Moses then received instructions for two new commandment tablets to replace the ones that he just destroyed in his anger after the golden calf debacle. He was to go alone and make sure that no one else was on the mountain with him. Moses did as he was told and had another stunning encounter with God. We read in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, the third and fourth generation. God returned to the scene in a cloud and identified himself by what theologians call the long name of God. So let's take a look at these attributes. 
(laughs) the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. So merciful means to relent from administering due punishment on the guilty. Remember that the Lord did not destroy the Israelites. Gracious, God is compassionate, benevolent, and he also longs to be with his people. Instead of turning away from them, he gives more of himself to the people. Slow to anger. In Hebrew, this is translated that God is long of nose. The idiom for anger in Hebrew is to burn in the nose. Imagine a red-hot nose when outraged. So if God is long of nose, it means that his nose is slow to get red-hot. In other words, he has a long fuse. The next two attributes are steadfast love and faithfulness. This steadfast love in Hebrew is the word hesed. God's love does not waver. He bears human sin with patience. He will not break his end of the deal, even when his covenant partners do break theirs. Keeping steadfast love for thousands means that this tender compassion and mercy will not end as vast as the generations become. This steadfast love, or hesed, is God's covenantal loyalty, the promise to make a way for us to be reconciled to him for eternity. The final pair of attributes are a stark contrast and remind us that God is not only a God of love and grace, but also of righteousness and justice. If we look back at Exodus 20, verse 5, we see that what that God says he will punish the third and fourth generation of those who hate him and rebel against him. Sinners will face the same reckoning of a holy God. Yet in comparison, we are meant to see the immensity of this steadfast love that he will show for thousands of generations to those who keep his commands. So how did Moses respond to this? As I believe we all should. He bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. He interceded once again in humility, asking for a pardon for the Lord's presence to go with the people. He knew who they were. They were sinners in deep need of their God. This should make us think of the gospel. They were, just as we are, sinners in deep need of God's mercy and grace. And God, proving once again that he is faithful to his promise, renewed the covenant with Israel. He not only renewed the covenant with them, but he promised that he would do marvelous things, even more marvelous than anything they had seen before. God's faithfulness to Moses and the nation of Israel was confirmed at this moment. It is an awesome thing I will do with you, he says. God remains true to his promises. Let's not forget that God was calling Israel or calling to make Israel a great nation. If Israel is not distinct from all the other people, how will anyone know that he is the one true God? In their behavior, they look like other people, but despite themselves, God makes a way for them to be a great nation, set apart for his glory. The unfaithful traitors are now reinstated to fellowship with God. 
we now get to see the covenant renewed. Moses returned to the same mountain for the same period of time, wrote on two stone tablets, just as he had before. There are differences, though, this time. Moses goes alone, the elders do not ratify this covenant, and the people make no promises. There are no if statements in this new covenant, but the covenant is still conditional. God's standards for his people are still high. God once again promises to drive out the Israelites' fiercest enemies, but also warns them to not covenant with the inhabitants of the land. He's recommitting to them, but he also knows their weakness. He is God after all. He wants them to live freely in covenant with him, not entangled in the trap of a false covenant with someone else. 2 Corinthians 6.14 is the same warning. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. In other words, be careful who you form alliances with. Make sure that you're not tempted to follow them in their worship of other gods. The Canaanites bowed down to other gods and sexual immorality was rampant among them. Back in Exodus 23, the Israelites were warned that the Canaanites rebellion against God had sealed their fate, so to speak. So not only were they not to covenant with them, they were also to destroy all of their idols. These new commands are a sign of the covenant, but also a source of protection for the Israelites. God knows they need to be saved from their sinful hearts and how easily they can be led astray. Does this remind you of anyone you might know? Verse 17 says, You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. God is a jealous God. He is unwilling to share his glory with another. This jealousy protects his, our relationship with him, and it is ultimately for our good. This is serious business. Since the Israelites had just made a feast to honor their golden calf, God commands them that they are only to observe his feasts from now on. These feasts would help them remember who God is and what he has done. They would lead them to worship and be devoted to him alone. Rest is to be observed in the slow seasons and in the busy seasons. It's so easy for us to say, I'll rest when I have less to do. But that mindset doesn't really follow God's plan. In our sermon last week, Tyler reminded us of these distractions that keep us from fulfilling our mission to edify or to enjoy God, edify the church, and evangelize the lost. The Sabbath rest helps us to reorient our hearts to these very things. No leavened bread was to be offered with the blood of his sacrifice. Leaven is equated with sin here. And sin cannot be part of this offering. The offering would not be left until morning. God also instructs the Israelites to bring their first and their best. Doing this honored God and acknowledged everything that they had was really from him. And of course, he had to sneak this last one in again. Do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Remember, the Canaanites had a cruel pagan fertility ritual doing this, and God was again reminding them that he is not to be worshipped in this way. 
For the second time, the Lord instructs Moses to write these words in a new covenant between God, Moses, and the Israelites. The tablets were inscribed with the Ten Commandments written down so as to not be forgotten. After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting from food and drink, Moses descended from Mount Sinai and returned to the camp. Now, I would think in this situation, he would look bedraggled, hangry, if you will. But instead, we are told that his face shone because he had been talking with God. The Hebrew word for shone means he shot forth beams. One commentator said he was miraculously adorned. The radiance they saw was a reflection of the glory of the Lord, yet it literally changed his physical appearance. Aaron and all of the people were intimidated by this, and they were afraid to go near Moses. But he was unaware that his face shone because he was humble in heart. So Moses calls to Aaron and the leaders, and they return to him. And after he talks to them for a little while, the rest of the Israelites return as well. After sharing with them all that God had commanded them, Moses put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses would talk to God, he would remove the veil. But whenever he would talk to the people, he would put the veil back on his face. The former covenant had a glory, but it was a glory that was fading away. We have a new hope, though, in Jesus Christ that will never fade away. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18 says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In Christ, we have a true and better Moses. Moses could not completely fill the gap between a sinful, unholy people and a holy God. Only Jesus can do that. Let's not forget that the great high priest Jesus has interceded on our behalf, completely filling that breach caused by sin. God's faithful mercy and steadfast loving kindness to a thousand generations is ours thanks to the precious sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We live in a new covenant, secured by the blood of Christ, and we are being continually transformed into greater degrees of glory by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you today, our merciful, gracious, loving, and just God. 
Thank you that we are secure by the blood of Jesus and we are continually being transformed into greater degrees of glory by your spirit. And it is your glory, Lord, that we long for, Father God. You are faithful, Yahweh. We love you. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.